this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. And I was uh, an advisor to the Obama administration's Office of Digital Strategy. And so I got to see firsthand mm-hmm. uh, how they worked. And there were a couple of things. First, at a personal level, he had a curiosity and uh, uh, interest in it. And you saw that in his campaigns, which were very digital centric. And, and they, and he's, I think he said this publicly, one of his great regrets is they weren't able to carry forward that sort of digital strategy and social strategy into the actual operations of the presidency because they had not anticipated the amount of obstacles to doing so, like the, the lack of flexibility in being able to do that. morning, good evening, hello, thank you for joining us wherever you are in the world. It is Wednesday, the 8th of March 2017, International Women's Day. So if you are an international woman, it's your day. If you're a local woman, though, out of luck, Kate. Why is that? It's International Women's Day. Oh. oh sorry, bit of a dad joke, okay. <laughs> thank you for joining us. This is episode 84 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about everything relating to tech, startups, entrepreneurship, all those exciting bits and pieces. And boy, do we have a fantastic guest for you coming up today. Very, very excited to say that later on in the podcast, um, we're going to play an interview that um, I did. I spoke with Anil Dash, who is the CEO of Fog Creek Software. He's also a very one of the first um, well-known bloggers. He got into blogging in, the, in pre-2000. And he's an incredibly insightful thinker about the tech industry. What I like about him, Kate, uh, besides the fact that he's incredibly smart and incredibly articulate, he knows which questions to ask in terms of self-reflecting about our industry and the place mm-hmm. in the in the place in the world. So very excited to play that that um, interview. It, it is quite a long interview, so because of that, we're going to get straight into only one news item and not do the normal post-mortem analysis um, to try and make it into the one hour. But because Anil is such a fantastic guest. I did want to let the interview run, and he was very generous with his time. Um, as always, my co-host, Kate Fappell, design lead at Manage Flutter and soon-to-be-managed social. And boy, is that looking good, but we won't tell you too much about that. It's very exciting. Very exciting. It's a project we've been working on for a long time. If you're interested in finding out more, go to managesocial.com. At the moment, I'm offering people, if they send a donation to their favorite charity, I'm giving them a sneak peek of that video that you did walk through, and we've had a couple of people do that already. So you know, for ten to twenty-five bucks, send send me a receipt of a donation you make to your favorite charity. We get nothing out of it except doing a little bit of good in the world, and we'll give you an exclusive sneak peek to the managed social product and very few people outside of our company have actually seen it in action. Mm, only and a handful. Only a handful. And Evan Dunn, who's a very well-known growth marketer, I gave him a peek into it. And I just want to read you quickly what he wrote after he looked at the, the new system, Manage Social. I love it so much. I watched it twice. I love how the search functionality is central, foldering, organizing, and editing searches. Beautiful, gorgeous UI. Well done. So we're very pumped for that. But um, anyway, feel free to go to managesocial.com. Let's get straight into it. Big story over the last little while, Kate's Snapchat, or as it's known now, Snap, um, listed on the stock exchange. It listed to all sorts of wonderful hype. It listed at $17 and sold 200 million shares. So that means it's got $3.4 billion into its kitty. And immediately the shares bounced all the way up to... um, 
I think it was about $28 on Tw- Monday. 28 and it um, has since come crashing back down. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about Snap and all their numbers and uh, what's going on with Snap. And, it's, and interestingly, comparing it, comparing it to Twitter, comparing it to Google, comparing it to Facebook. So Snap or Snapchat has... Um, as you know, it's, uh, if you're listening to the show, you've probably heard us talk a little bit about it. It was the first to provide what's called ephemeral messaging, messages that don't stick around. And um, when you list, you have to release a whole bunch of information about your company, which is quite interesting. What they released is that they have 158 million average daily active users Um, as of the end of 2016, which is still a lot less than Instagram, a lot less than Twitter, a Mm. lot less than Facebook. And it was growing pretty fast up until about 2016, and then it just started plateauing. So a lot of people are saying that, well, that's a a red flag. An impressive number is it got revenue up. Uh, We we call it in Australia turnover. 2015 turned over nearly $60 million for the year. Last year, though, $404 million, huge, huge jump. But, mm. of course, it's making a huge loss. Just because you're bringing in money doesn't mean that you uh, are actually making a profit. So it made a massive, massive loss. The, the losses, in fact, are growing. So in $373 million in 2015 and $514 million in 2016. Mm. However, if you look at Twitter, if you look at Facebook, if you look at Google, they were all in similar positions, right? They yeah. all started out. Tech companies, you generally have to um, you know, build out your infrastructure, build, build out your, your value proposition, and then find a way to monetize. Well, at least that's the Silicon Valley model. That's not the bootstrap. We had David Hanemeyer Hansen a few shows ago. His model is very different. It's bootstrapping, making money pretty quickly, making a profit pretty quickly. They're different metaphors for starting and uh, growing a business, but this is the Silicon Valley metaphor. So they are actually losing... Um, losing money and um, a lot of analysts say it's only really worth about $15 a share so yeah look share prices are are, are definitely something that's it's uh, in the eye of the beholder but just to compare the market caps which is a very interesting number so market caps is the share price times the number of shares and that's generally indicative of the value of a company Facebook's market cap is nearly $400 billion, right? Huge. It's the big kid on the block. Snap's market cap um, at the moment and probably at the peak was about $28 billion. So you can see a huge, huge gap between nearly $400 billion mm-hmm. and $28 billion. And Twitter, and this is, this is interesting, Snap was worth more than Twitter. Twitter's market cap is only $12 billion, right? Mm-hmm. Which doesn't quite make sense. Um, Twitter's got far more significance in our society at the moment um, than Snapchat. What often happens with shares, you're buying into the promise of it. That's when shares become overpriced and it's the view that you take, whether you believe that it's going to do great things, whether it's going to land up being a Facebook or a Google or it's going to land up being something like Dig or Orkut or one of these things that we a lot of people haven't even heard of. So... To compare also the market cap of Google, which is the real big big one on the block, Google's revenue is nearly $100 billion a year. 
So I'm just looking up all these stats. So it's 90 billion US dollars. Facebook's revenue is 27 billion dollars compared with Snapchat's revenue of eking out 500 million. So you can see why these companies, Facebook and Google, are absolutely massive. They they really, the scale of them is is quite um, remarkable. And Google's market cap, I'll just quickly um, see if I can pull this up. On that note about um, buying into the promise or the potential of something, a lot of the articles I've read so far, investors are primarily concerned with the high running costs and the ability for Snapchat to compete with Facebook and the fact that everything Snapchat has done right has just been copied by Facebook, which is not a promising outlook. And copied particularly by Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. Yep. All right. So um, so I'm just looking here. So um, Google's market cap is $580 billion. So you can see the... the, the, the Giant. Yeah, they giants. And compared to Google and Facebook, everything looks tiny. And it's, you know, not to diminish the success of Snapchat. It's still, they've achieved huge things. But um, obviously compared to Facebook and Google, no one Mm. really compares. But yes, look, Snapchat's got a real um, big challenge on their hand. They're up against Facebook. They're up against Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. What they do have on their side is something very powerful, which is the millennials. And people love having um, owning the millennial market because they're about to get into that sweet spot demographic that sort of 25 to 40 year old where people spend money mm. and that's where advertisers always love to market to that group of people because they out there they're aspirational they're starting to make a little bit of money they're starting to live life a bit and that group is uh, where you can sell stuff to and the millennials might be under that now but they'll grow up and they might stay with the platform if they do the right thing if snapchat if snapchat innovate and iterate in the right way maybe but one would argue they're also the most uh i guess the riskiest demographic fickle yeah fickle they're gonna change their mind every 10 seconds and their loyalty i guess can be easily bought yeah and look it's uh you know snapchat's could potentially buy Twitter, Twitter could buy Snapchat, Google could buy, you know, mm. it's, there's a lot of these companies and there is a lot of politics in these companies. Um, Twitter tried to buy Instagram and, of course, Instagram sold to Facebook and, um, you know, Jack Dorsey apparently was, the, who was one of the founders of Twitter, was incredibly heartbroken by that. He was a very big Instagram user and the day that deal fell through, stopped using Instagram. Wow. <laughs> used it since. <laughs> and uh, what else does he use? He uses Twitter. I suppose. Yeah. It's not the same. Not the same. Every every social media network has got its own um, DNA, so to speak. Mm. But so, if Facebook continue copying Snapchats or Instagram do or they spin off another product which is even closer to Snapchat again and directly marketed at millennials, it would be interesting to see where where the market stayed Look, as or a, went. As a CEO and entrepreneur, the exciting and terrifying thing about having a business is you don't know what the future holds. And it's there's so many factors. There's internal factors. There's external factors. There's macro factors. There's, um, there's technological factors. And no one knows. Facebook almost sold to Yahoo for about $1.3 billion. 
looks like an absolute bargain if they could have got it for that price. Google at some stage were trying to sell themselves for just in the millions. I can't remember exactly, you know. And it's because these companies, no one has the foresight. No, they didn't know they were going to be, you mm. know, a, a $94 billion revenue business. And so this, with Snap, well, it could go the way of a company that grows into something Remember, they, companies are living, breathing things. The Snapchat today doesn't have to be the Snapchat of tomorrow and of next week. Very right? true. I mean, they've changed their, their take as well. They're a camera company now, so they could come up with all sorts of additional products and not just rely on their app. Sure, people love those Snapchat filters. Um, yeah, the filters, but also the, they've got glasses now, yeah. like physical glasses that you can – I'm not sure how they work, but I'm pretty sure you can click them and it goes straight to your Snap story. So the Snapchat of today could be something totally different. And, you know, if you look at Facebook, the first version of Facebook didn't even have news feed, right? Didn't it? No. I mean, oh, I, re- I saw, sort of like MySpace, right? Yeah. I, I remember when news feed came out. And I remember then when they put in algorithmic news feed and all these changes. And you look back and you just can see all these changes that they mm. – they rolled out and when then when they upped their mobile version from html5 to a proper mobile version and that was another so and this is why these companies a lot of the time do go for raising money so you can execute out on these this requires smart people to do all of this and resources very hard to bootstrap mm-hmm. you know and they, as i mentioned they're the two different metaphors of bootstrapping and trying to build out as you go versus having a big chunk of change and just, just as they say in silicon valley swinging for the fences going for it all Anyway, we'll leave it there because we want to get to the chat with Anil Dash. Um, We're going to take a short break and we'll come back with my chat after this, so stay with us. Hi, this is Dave with ManageFlitter. ManageFlitter is a tool that helps you work smarter and faster on Twitter. With ManageFlitter, you can clean up and grow your Twitter account. You'll also get useful Twitter analytics, social content scheduling, and much more. Go to manageflitter.com and start your free trial today. You're back with the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Managed Flitter. And on this podcast, we talk about everything related to tech, startups, entrepreneurship, um, our industry. And um, sometimes one of my favorite things to do in the podcast is to zoom out on our industry and have a bigger picture look at what's going on. And uh, I'm very excited to say at the end of my um, Skype line, I have Anil Dash, who's the CEO of Fog Creek Software. And Anil has got the great honor of once being named in a Quora answer as the Obama of tech. Anil, thank you so much for joining us. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it's a great title to have nonetheless. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm not sure what it means either, but it sounds flattering. And so I will accept it as true. (laughs) Fantastic. Anil, you're based in uh, New York, which is a little bit um, um, not not unusual. There's a lot of big New York tech companies. There's Etsy. There's some of the other more uh, fashion tech and fintech startups. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, there's, I'm, I'm sitting in Sydney and I'm actually looking out onto the Atlassian HQ offices and we'll talk, <laughs> a, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the link yes, with, the, with, with the Trello and Atlassian. But, you know, in Sydney, there's this great mythology around San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And I've been really impressed in my trips to New York the last couple of years, how New York is very quickly becoming an epicenter of tech as well. Yeah, very much so. You know, I had spent some time in San Francisco um, um, now more than a decade ago, 2004, 2006, somewhere in that time frame. And uh, I liked it very much and and learned a lot. But uh, uh, one, you know, in the states where you're from in terms of, you know, here on the East Coast with uh, New York and and 
Washington, D.C. and the like are very different than uh, how the West Coast is perceived with San Francisco and Seattle and Los Angeles and those sorts of cities. And so there are substantive cultural differences. But for me, the biggest was that what I felt living in San Francisco and in the Bay Area in general was that it was almost a one industry town or felt that way if you worked in technology. This was what everyone was paying attention to. And the example I always say to people is, you know, I would take my dog for a walk in the evening and walk by people talking about their startup and their podcast and yeah, these sorts of things. And, you know, the contrast to uh, here in New York, um, you know, where I sort of had found a, a broader, you know, community to be part of was that people could, as, as you had said, you know, you look at fintech and you look at fashion and some other things, but also those are just standalone industries. They might have a technology component, but for somebody to work in media and publishing, somebody to work in finance, somebody to work in fashion, somebody to work in education, they might not be concerned with what the latest trends are in the tech world at all uh, and only just care about them in terms of what it could do for helping them, you know, make something interesting or, or create something in the world. And that was immensely appealing to me, especially because I think it led to a bit of a social conscience or a civic mindedness to the technology community here in New York that I didn't find in San Francisco. There's definitely in New York, there's, um, there's definitely in New York, you feel like you a New Yorker first and everything else second. And in San Francisco, sometimes as much as people are very community minded, sometimes it feels like it's, um, you know, epicenter of technology first and everything else second, right? Yeah, I think that's very fair. And I think it's also to some degree, I, I had a friend years ago say, you know, all of San Francisco tech or the, you know, the Silicon Valley is sort of one company that has different divisions that are called Google and Facebook and you know whatever right. else. And, and, and that does feel true. People sort of change seats within that uh, arrangement, but they don't get outside of it. Whereas I know so many people that I work with, even I think of on our team at Fog Creek, um, you know, where I joined a few months ago and, and, and people are uh, former school teachers and people that have worked in construction and like any manner of different, you know, completely different industries and not, Oh, well, I was in one technology company and then another. When I was in San Francisco, one of my first trips, I was not not used to the fact of that that uh, technology saturation. And I had a an, an older cab driver who also happens to be female, and she asked me what I did, and I said I'm you know I have a product that works with Twitter, and she then threw out to me, um, "What do you think of the latest Twitter API changes?" And, and I, was, <laughs> I yeah. sort of had to do a double take, and I was like, "Okay, yeah, well, yeah. that's you know, thanks for pointing right. out." that I'm, 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 I'm uh, making uh, assumptions about your level of depth of tech uh, understanding. So that, that really made me smile. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a, that, that epitomizes exactly the cultural thing there. Where at some level, that's, you know, fascinating. And it does, you know, for people who are entrepreneurs, reinforce that idea that you're the center of the world, right? If even the cab driver cares what you're talking about and they have an opinion about the, you know, the change to, to OAuth and the streaming API from Twitter, you know, those types of things. And you say, well, we, it must be critically important what we're doing if all these people are paying attention. And I think, you know, depending on how healthy your sense of self is and your, your perspective on things, you may or may not be taken in by that. But I think that's something that uh, in the long run is, is actually very dangerous is to have that much of um, a reverence for an industry that is still so young and still figuring its way into the world and still making a lot of mistakes. 
Well, one of the great things about San Francisco is they do talk a lot about, you know, our industry is about changing the world. And you've spoken a lot recently about how our own industry, that being the tech industry, has to self-regulate. We have to also set, you know, hold each other accountable and also set the bar higher in terms of, you know, that we're not setting the bar high enough, maybe perhaps in terms of, you know, putting more than lip service to changing the world and actually really self-reflecting if, if it's more than if it's just we intend to change the world and make it better or we're actually investing real resources into um, our intentions and it's it's more than just more than just a, a statement yeah very much so I think it's a, it's a big concern for me and I and I don't say it as anything accusatory toward others I just sort of reflect on mistakes or shortcomings of my own where you know, I thought, well, our intentions are good and therefore our results and our outcomes will be good. And, you know, as you get older and more experienced, and I've been in this industry 20 years or so now, uh, you realize, yeah, you can mean well, but that doesn't mean that the system you designed, the, you know, the technology you created or the community that you created necessarily has only positive impacts. Even if some of them are good, that doesn't mean everything overall is good. And, and that took a long time to learn and to really accept because I think for so long, I at least, and maybe others, had envisioned, well, the, the only way something bad would happen is if you have some sort of villain, you know, with a, that's twirling their mustache and thinking, let me do something bad in the world, sure. you know? And, and that's seldom the case. I think it's much more often that we create something, you know, the example I would use, I, I built um, uh, blogging software and, and content management systems and social media platforms for many years, some of the, mm-hmm. the early tools. And you know, we were always very, very invested and, and passionate in the idea of giving people a voice. And, and I still feel that way. I think that was, you know, one of the most meaningful things we were able to do was to help make the tools that, that people use to launch, you know, the Huffington Post and Gawker and countless, you know, mil- literally millions of other sites. And so mm-hmm. that was something that was, I was very proud of. And we would sort of very proudly look at, oh, you know, these two people were having a conversation in the comments one day and they met each other and they fell in love and they got married. And that's what our platform enables people to do, connect around their ideas and form a real connection and all these other good things. And then, you know, as time went on and we started to see, oh, well, these people are uh, being quite awful to each other in the comments and stifling conversation by being abusive and harassing and all the other things that I think we, pretty much everyone on the internet knows about now. Um, you know, we pointed those things out or, or had them pointed out to us. And then we're like, well, that's not our fault. The technology is neutral. People can use them in different ways. It's not, you know, anybody's, it's not anybody on our team's responsibility to fix it if people ask like, ask like jerks. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I, I didn't connect the dots for a long time to say, well, I can't take credit for the good things and say our technology enabled that while completely ignoring the bad things and saying it's not our fault and who could, who could possibly blame us for these people acting this way. I mean, is it is it also because our industry is essentially we uh, uh, technical people? I mean, a lot of the products that were built, um, you know, whether it's Facebook or Google, or, you know, they were engineers that, you know, they got into it for the love of solving technical problems initially, at least. And that's in a way that the DNA that has, you know, that, that our industry comes from. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, and part of this is going back to those days, even before I moved out to San Francisco, there was, we used to have conferences in, you know, 2002 about what was called social software, right? And nowadays we would call it, you know, 
social networking or apps or whatever. It was sort of figuring out what this realm was going to be. And the only language and context we had for it was what we had all sort of been introduced to technology through, which was the conventional uh, software industry, which was even then still uh, mostly packaged software. You know, you would literally would buy a copy of Microsoft Office or Photoshop or something on a, C- on a DD- DVD-ROM or CD-ROM or, you know, I'm old enough that we had floppy disks. And that the software was a, a, you know, for lack of a better term, a single player experience, right? You had it on your sure. device and you would create something and, and that was how it worked. And so the, the understanding of what software was, was a tool that you use in the way that a carpenter uses their saw and their hammer. And what it took a very long time to realize was when we made network systems that were very large scale, you know, some of the first open platforms that have a million users on them. You know, I helped work on the sites like LiveJournal. And it wasn't just software that happens to have a network behind it. It was different in kind. It was a community and it was almost a place and it had to reflect all of the cultural obligations and social obligations and just even social norms, right? The behaviors and things that, uh, that we, you would expect with a very large human community. And, and all of a sudden, you know, I think it took us a long time to realize this has nothing to do with whether we're fixing bugs and if we know algorithms and, you know, whether, whether we're adept at, you know, uh, these technical considerations like managing memory or how a server performs. This is much more about how do people act in large groups and do we have the background in anthropology and sociology and, and behavioral sciences and, and even ethics training. Uh, to be able to act responsibly as stewards of a community that has millions of people in it. And that was a very, very different mandate than what we thought we were doing when we, we set out to build some pretty icons for our you know, little app. And what concerns me is that on so many levels, we are not having conversations around the ethics of the technology that we're creating and takes place in the world. I saw a video earlier this week, you probably saw it. I think the company is a Boston company. Is it Boston Dynamics, that robotics yeah. company? Yeah. And they, they released that video of that you know, robot just with, with the dexterity and leaping over things and running over things. And, and of yeah. course, what first comes to mind is if, if that thing uh, holds a gun, right? Yeah. Um, what's capable. And, you know, we don't have to get into the whole Trump politics side of things, but the one area that I wish whoever is leading starts having a discussion around technology, automation, AI, robotics. I don't think that most people or even the people in the upper echelons of the executive realize that this wave of change that's coming that we're just not quite ready for and we have no idea how it's going to impact us. Not at all. And, and, you know, the thing is, I think the people creating these technologies who are, you know, in the Googles and, and Facebooks of the world and Boston Dynamics, which I think. It, That's right. Was, Boston Dynamics, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think they were owned by Google. I don't know if they still are, but uh, they, they are struggling with the ethics of this. So then to think of an ordinary politician, especially, you know, at the local level, at a city level, municipal level, having the fluency and the literacy to make intelligent policy decisions about these things when even the people who create them barely can is unlikely to the point of absurdity, right? And so you think about like, this is a conversation we're going to have to be able to have across many different disciplines in many different areas of society. And yet that's not happening. We don't have uh, large conversations about this here in New York uh, City where our police department has a, unfortunately, a very long track record of 
excesses and abuses and, and, mm-hmm. and kinds of biases. We're in the process, one of our city council members proposed a policy of um, civilian oversight of which surveillance technologies are deployed. Um, to my mind, seems eminently reasonable. I mean, this is just a basic, and any policing system should respond to uh, citizens that it serves. And, and the proposal is actually fairly modest. It was that uh, civilians would have oversight into things like which camera systems were used, how data was retained, some of these new um, social media and surveillance tracking systems and other technologies would have uh, a way for uh, you know people in the community to be able to look at them and, and make a decision in collaboration with the police. And you know, and then this was I thought a very modest, reasonable, measured proposal. Mm-hmm. And the immediate response from uh, person in charge of communications at the, at the New York Police Department was uh, this would empower and embolden uh, Al Qaeda. If we were to take these steps towards uh, uh, having a measured approach and how we deploy technology, and the extraordinary thing about that, I mean, one, I, I sort of, you know, I, I was like, it's a, at this point, an Al Qaeda reference feels very dated mm. compared to even ISIS, and it's very and it's very loaded as well in any case, right? Well, right? And, and yeah, and I was saying, so like, one, it's just the sort of the anachronism of that, and two, the completely wildly intellectually irresponsible part of that too, which is to say like, there has never been uh, any scenario in which these technologies were related to anything remotely having to do with that kind of, you know, extremist terrorism or anything else. So, so obviously this was something where they couldn't even have a reasonable response. They just took it well, well out of the realm of, of any kind of reasonable conversation. And so I think about this and I sort of despair at, well, how can we even, if that's the kind of like, you know, almost like beyond parody level of response to this, how are we going to have a conversation about whether the way that we're maintaining records of video cameras is respecting of people's sort of privacy and civil rights? Like, I think we we are, you know, so far from even being able to have a, a grown-up adult conversation about that, that I think a lot of it is going to devolve to what we as technologists create because we can as it turns out, preempt that entire conversation simply by building the right ethical choices into uh, the platforms as we invent them. So why is there no push from the tech industry? I mean, it's, it would be easy enough. I mean, if Trump can get, you know, all, the, all of them sitting around a table, why, why is, there's no push from Facebook and Twitter? And, and even, I mean, you the CEO at the moment of a significant uh-huh. company, why is there no push yeah. to sit around in a room and go, right, let's create um, a, a lobby group, a, a, something that we can sort of, you know, talk about these issues and present a, a paper around some thinking. And yeah. it's, why is that not happening? It does actually seem quite, quite ridiculous that that's not taking place? So it took me a long time to sort of think about what an answer to this could be because I, I, I felt, you know, I think sometimes you feel like you're sort of in the madhouse where you're like, you know, does, does everyone see this thing that I see? You know, mm. and, and what I came to realize is for some of the bigger companies in Silicon Valley, the position that the technologies we create are neutral and it's not our fault how people use them or misuse them is a very intentional political choice. Um, is, it, is it also a commercial choice as well? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And so what I had thought was um, merely ignorance or a lack of you know, forethought on their part, I've come to understand as a tactic, um, because if you pos- position uh, uh, your technologies as being completely neutral, 
that any sort of misuse of it is not your liability. And that happens in a small way, right? So the, not, not that it's minor, but the, the sort of like things like the harassment on social networks or something like that is, is sort of a first step. And then the bigger steps are you think about, well, entire industries are being disrupted. So we have our, you know, our truck or our lorry drivers that uh, uh, drive the tractor trailers, the, what we call the big rigs. And there are millions of those drivers here in the States and they'll be replaced by self-driving trucks. I, if I had to guess, probably in the next five to 10 years, mm -hmm. very quickly. And so you're talking about massive economic displacement. It's and the biggest it, employer in the world, transport. Yeah, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and the, the most expensive parts of it are the most expensive because they are well-paid labor for people that otherwise wouldn't really have uh, a skilled job uh, to be able to take in its place. So incredibly uh, essential to the communities that they serve. They're the sort of the highest earners in the communities that they work in. So when, not if, when this transition comes to the self-driving trucks, it is going to be incredibly dramatic and, and very uh, stressful for these communities to reckon with. Well, of course, we had, a bit, we had a bit of a use case, right, when Uber came along and it disrupted the taxi industry and there yeah. were, you know, people in Paris, France burning it and et cetera. So, I mean, that's, yeah. that's certainly a taste of what's to come. And ta taxi drivers in most countries are driving taxis because they don't have much of a choice to earn a living wage or anything else. So, as you mentioned, the, the, the truckers don't always have a choice. And if, and if they suddenly disappear, they, they could be, a, and in a way, rightly so, a backlash. And in yeah. my opinion, this is where the role of government government should be to smooth out these bumps, right? That, that's exactly right. And so, uh, well, one, we have a bigger problem in the States where obviously even that idea that that's the role of government is a, a big point of contention, apparently. Sure. And the most radical opposition to that are people based in Silicon Valley. Right? They, they have the, you know, the Peter Thiels of the world but, have a very, very view. But in, but in fairness, Peter Thiel doesn't represent the, the typical Silicon no. Valley view, though. No, 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 I don't think he does at all. But I think the problem is that that's who has an outsized influence. And I think, I think if you look at Peter Thiel, if you, do, if you look at um, you know, Travis Kalanick from Uber, they are not typical in terms of the politics of most of the founders or, or funders in Silicon Valley, but they are the ones of the most influence, right? Like sure. right now, everyone is trying to make Uber for what have you, whatever you can imagine, right? And so whatever Uber does is, is seen as a model. And, and anyway, the end of that thought is by positioning themselves as neutral and saying the technology is neutral and, it, and denying essentially that technology has ethics built into it, they avoid becoming culpable for this amazing change, this dramatic change in any associated unrest that comes as a result of it. And understanding that, I think, took me a long time. I, I was sort of perhaps willfully naive thinking, oh no, you know, they, they really want what's best. Uh, when you realize is they're, they're sort of, they would rather not be, have to be concerned. You can uh, understand why though, the contentious nature and the, the gray areas and where do you draw the lines? And it's, yeah. I, I think, I think it would almost be great is that if every technology company, whether it's a gun and ammunition company, or even mm -hmm. a tech startup at a certain market cap or revenue has to have a representative on some ethics think tank and we can thrash yeah. out these issues and find that area of compromise of, of that we can find this pathway forward. Um, That's right. In, well, and I think they would if the regulators and the legislators and the politicians knew what was happening. But they, you know, the people in office, you know, at our national level, our, our, our members of Congress, we have 635 of them. And 
there may be six of them that know how to install an app on a smartphone out of that entire cohort. Is it that extreme, really? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. They're not, they're wildly out of touch. They're not, you know, slightly illiterate. When you talk about the sharing economy and Uber and, you know, Airbnb or whatever the other exemplars are of it, they've never seen them. Things like the blockchain, you're not even going to, you're not even going to. No, right, exactly. Right. right, right. This, this thing that we find as technologists somewhat complicated and abstract and took us a little bit of time to understand is inconceivable to them. And so when you look at why are there problems around net neutrality and we, you know, we can sort of casually as technologists say, oh, well, these are the layers of the stack and this is the layer you want to have innovation happen at the application layer and, and you, know, not, you know, not be locked down at the transport layer and whatever things. That's, that's like I said, so far beyond the realm of what kind of conversation they can have of their literacy in these things where, and, and I've spent it, you know, this was, for many years, I worked in policy. I created a nonprofit organization, a non-governmental organization here that was designed to drive public engagement with policymakers through social networks. And so spent a good bit of time talking to policymakers and, and, and even elected officials here. And, you know, there were some that are of very good intent, but the level of fluency in the technologies was shockingly low, shockingly low. There's a thing I always use as an example, and I think this actually, even Trump had done this when referring to his 10-year-old son, where we would have nationally elected officials, very, very prominent people, you know, considered cultural leaders, and they would sort of just say casually, yeah, I don't know anything about technology. I always just rely on my nephew to tell me how the internet works. Mm. And you think about if you were a regulator in charge of uh, the banking industry, the finance industry, and said, well, I've never had a a bank account and I don't know anything about economics, but I asked my my cousin, you know, you you would think it would be so obviously irresponsible, they would be ashamed. What was Obama like though? I mean, he he had signs that he he had some sense of the lay of the land. Yeah, a couple of things, you know, and I was uh, an advisor to the Obama administration's office of digital strategy. And so I got to see firsthand Mm -hmm. uh, how they worked. And there were a couple of things. First, at a personal level, he had a curiosity and uh, uh, interest in it. And you saw that in his campaigns, which were very digital centric. And, and they, and he's, I think he said this publicly, one of his great regrets is they weren't able to carry forward that sort of digital strategy and social strategy into the actual operations of the presidency because they had not anticipated the amount of obstacles to doing so, like the, the lack of flexibility and being able to do that. And, and, and the example I always go to is when, I first started working with you know the White House on social media engagement. Their team was using Internet Explorer six in the White House and could not and were blocked from accessing Facebook. The famous uh, Internet Explorer six, right? Exactly, known they as the buggiest version, right? <laughs> exactly. And so you know, so they, there was no chance that they could have been good at it. And then of course, they they changed things as quickly as they could, and eventually ended up creating the U.S. Digital Service and other sort of national level projects that were bringing in very, very qualified technologists, one, one of whom um, the last uh, uh, head of the Office of Digital Strategy with the Chief Digital Officer of the United States was uh, Jason Goldman, who had been a, you know, of course, from Twitter, right? Exactly. One of right. the seminal figures in Twitter and blogger and, and helped found the medium. So, you know, incredibly, incredibly literate in these things. And, and that leap to go from essentially no digital function to having somebody who's, you know, as hands-on with having created modern social media as almost anyone. Uh, I think it showed what they could be. And so that's, that's you know, very, very impressive. But what, what you come back to is 
they were putting in process all these, the ability to have a, a, you still can actually do this. I don't know if the Trump administration is going to keep it running, but they have a Facebook messenger bot where you could write it. You could at that point write a, a you know, a letter to President Obama uh, through mm-hmm. Facebook messenger and they would get a response and it would be read. And he read 10 letters from citizens every day or from Americans every day. And one of them would come in through Facebook. Uh, each day. And so, you know, that was, that was the kind of thing that was possible. And and so you start to imagine there was this literacy and by the end of it, they had had a, you know, an iOS and Android app that did a augmented reality history of the white house when you pointed it at our dollar bill, the currency. So like they had gone all the way forward into uh, kind of gadget. And that's of course all been walked back. And, and, and as I said, we now have, you know, and Trump has said this, you know, he, he knows all about the cyber because his 10 year old is good at computers It's a ludicrous kind of state of affairs. Well, I think it's a ludicrous state of affairs because, um, you know, he came in on a a mandate from the the middle class in a way, and the middle class is at threat from this automation the most, right? Even even jobs like lawyers and accountants, and as we mentioned, um, you know, um, transport people, and and they ride in the firing line of all this radical change that's about to just sweep on through. Yeah, and I think that's something – I do think there definitely is a – cross-class boundary where um, we, well, one of the interesting things, and, you know, I don't want to dwell on the political part too much, but the, you know, the, a lot of the rhetoric was about, you know, we're losing jobs. The, the narrative he created was, the, you know, that it's to China or to you know, you know, Mexico or something. And of course, the, what the, the figures show, the facts show is that it's actually to automation, right? And so, and of course, in a world where, you know, Amazon's already doing delivery by drone, that's not going to be improving. And then to the point that you point out of the, um, you know, the lawyers and the accountants and those things, that I think that is more of a an offshoring outsourcing concern because the immediacy of communications will allow companies to take those roles probably to cheaper markets like China and India and the Philippines and other other areas. And I think, but that's a sort of there's sort of two parts to that, right? And and I think that the fact that they can't even have that conversation in a nuanced way is something that I think tech is using to hide under so that we don't get the finger point at us either. But the, even the accounting and the lawyer, I mean, the, the machine learning and the AI, I mean, I, I wasn't even referring mm-hmm. to the, the offshoring side of things. I was even just referring to the, the AI and machine learning of, of, of being able to, um, and the bots where you can just, you know, have a yeah. chat with them and then they whack out the contract for you. And, and Yeah, like yeah. I mean, you think of something like accounting where a tax code is a knowable, encodable thing. It's called code for a reason. And so um, being able to imagine an AI that learns at the very least, what what looks like you've done the accounting correctly and flag the right things. That seems eminently doable. What I, the reason I point out the offshoring first, followed by the complete automation, mm-hmm. is this two-step process, the two-stage process of essentially dismantling an industry and and you know taking the labor out of an industry is a pattern that keeps repeating. And so, you know, Uber, the step one is take people out of the ordinary taxi system, the ordinary cab system, and have them be dispatched entirely through the Uber app. And, and of course, the the promise to the drivers is, well, you know, you, the old taxi system is corrupt and this is more predictable and maybe the, they'll make a little bit more money up front in the beginning. And then, of course, the second step is self-driving cars, right? And we'll see the same thing with firms that today are saying, let's move our, um, you know, accounting to this sort of cloud-based service. And, I, I, you know, I, I was in New Zealand recently and got to talk to some of the Zero folks and their product is very good, but you can mm-hmm. imagine the... Step one, outsource your accounting to them and two, have that all be replaced by AI as well, right? And so this this two-step process by which you sort of first centralize and 
uh, optimize a, a, a market and then two completely automated is is going to keep repeating. And Neil, let's chat. I know it's getting late your sure. time in New York. Let's just uh, let, let's just talk about your your real world side of things. Yeah, you were you. you were named a CEO of Fog Creek Software. Now, some people might not be familiar with actually that brand, Fog Creek Software, yeah. but that was um, created initially by um, Joel Spolsky, who started the first product, Fog Bugs, and then of That's course right. the very well known Stack Overflow, and then the even better known Trello. And mm-hmm. now there's something that you guys are involved with called um, GoMix. Fog Creek has taken a, a slightly unusual approach in this federated approach. Again, back to the Silicon Valley mm-hmm. model of um, yeah, yeah. co-founders, one product, one brand, go big on it. And they don't quite like this federated approach of sort of don't put all your eggs in one basket type thing. And you guys have seemed to have made some success out of it. Yeah, this is really a fundamentally different thing. You know, so, so Fog Creek Software was co-founded by Joel Spolsky and Michael Pryor both of whom are still good friends of mine. And, and I was, you know, a fan. I feel a bit like the, the person who sort of comes up singing, you know, with the hairbrush in the mirror, singing along to a song and then gets invited to join the band a little <laughs> bit, you know. Um, and so that's been just a, extraordinarily exciting for me. And so I had been, I think, as many of us that were around at the turn of the century in the tech industry, reading Joel's blog, Joel and, Sp- uh, and Software. And Joel Spolsky was the sort of one of the first voices really talking about tech culture broadly, but also how to be a good programmer and how to make good software and how and to in, build a team. Yeah, And importantly, how to hire and manage developers. And I say yes. regularly, many of his phrases, like you wonder when we're hiring, we're looking for someone who's smart and get shit done, right? And yes, uh, yeah, yeah. And so, it's so true. I mean, that literally, that was, you know, and this is the thing is to sit in the seat uh, of the man who wrote that and then be hiring at a company, you know, is a, is a heavy weight. And it's, 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 it's exciting, but it's a bit the sort of like, wow, what am, you know, what am I doing here? Because I wouldn't have, at the time, I remember at the time reading what Joel was writing in 2000, 2001 and said, wow, I would never pass that test. And so, you know, that's something that, uh, I thought a lot about, but because the company was constructed that way, which is, and, and this is still something I, I think about literally every day, we, we hire people who are talented, motivated, and genuinely empathetic and thoughtful, and, and then sort of empower them to, to be able to create. And so, um, you know, and the first thing they did is they made Fogbugs, which is still our flagship product. And, and it is, it is the, it is the product that invented modern bug tracking and issue tracking. Right. And so, that's something that I think is an incredible legacy. And then a couple of years later, the team said, what would be a simpler way to take just the one immediate problem that every programmer has around answering the questions that we have and not have the, the barriers that are sort of on the other sites that were on the web at the time. And they teamed up with Jeff Atwood and they built Stack Overflow. Um, and I'm, I'm on the board of Stack. And that was actually when I started really working regularly with Joel and and Joel CEO of Stack Overflow, right? That's right. And Stack, and then Stack spun out on its own. So Joel is CEO of Stack Overflow. It's a standalone company. They've got, you know, hundreds of employees. A, an absolutely uh, incredible business around uh, recruiting talent. And and really, it was taking these ideas about how you respect programmers and how you respect people as individuals and creating a technology company and building them into the very business model of what Stack Overflow is. I love that that sense of you carrying the values through, you know, all the way through into what the product is and how people help each other. And even little things like everything, every bit of content that anybody's ever answered on mm-hmm. Stack Overflow, they own. They own the intellectual property rights too. So it's licensed to the site. But if you want to take everything you've ever answered, every question you've ever answered on Stack Overflow and make a book of your own, you don't have to even get permission. You can just go and do it. There's an API, you can download all your stuff and you can do that. 
and that's and, very and different to a lot of other content type sites that's, where that's exactly right once it's on there it's theirs right yeah yeah and so that was something that was really important was the sort of thoughtfulness you know i had been on the stack board and uh, you know would go initially they worked out of the fog creek office and so i would go and visit wow what a beautiful office and they have these great lunches and this incredible view of the you know from of the new york city skyline from you know we're, we're all the way downtown in new york city and you can go out and see, literally see the statue of liberty where we eat lunch and then you know now working at that company to be able to sit there is just absolutely incredible and and so i'd see it and then you know one of the times he said well you know michael's got this thing that we came up with and he wants to show you and long story short it was trello uh, and I was I actually thought, at the TechCrunch when it launched. I was at yeah, the TechCrunch. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that, te- that TechCrunch just dropped. And, and I, think, I think it was a week before that, that in New York, I'd gotten to see what they were going to demo at TechCrunch. So they're like, we're going to go out to San Francisco and we're going to show this thing off. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really good. Yeah, this, this it was is really polished, really slick yeah. from the get-go, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had done the work. And, you know, the interesting thing about it was, it was no outside investment. They had built it on their own and their team. And their team had built other things along the way. There was a screen sharing tool and some other things that they had built that were also, um, each of them sort of successful for a time. They made a blogging app that was successful for a time. And, and and then also they sort of let them run their course. Like they didn't try to drag it out when one of them said, okay, you know, we don't need to be making a blogging app anymore. That's sort of solved. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they would shut it down. And and so they said, we're looking for our next project to make. They made Trello. They realized they had gotten it right, I think, um, almost immediately. And they went all in on launching it at TechCrunch and, and, and building this great product. It's actually, it's funny. That's the only angel investment I've ever done, as it were. You know, they said, you know, would you want to, we're going to, we think we're going to get a little bit of funding so we can make it its own company and start to grow it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because and, and it's funny because they didn't do that until it literally had millions of users. They did it on their own inside Fog Creek. It got to a couple million users and they thought, oh, well, we should get some more resources so we can sort of- Wanted to double down on it. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and at that point, I, I said, yeah, you know, I would love to be an angel investor in this. And still to this day is the only time I've ever done that in my life. But it just, it was so obviously a great tool that people would love. And then that spun out on its own. But there's a, there's a really, I think there's a really unique and surprising thing that happened that I, that I don't think most of them people in the world know, which is Trello spun off of Fog Creek and became its own company. Michael became the CEO of that. So the other co-founder went to run that. And yet to this day, Fog Creek and Trello still share an office. Our headquarters in New York is both teams together. We have lunch together. We have a single table that everybody sits around, you know, that holds 40 people on a long table. We bring in lunch every day, these really wonderful catered lunches with window behind us, the view of the Statue of Liberty and all the rest and sit around and talk through these pro- what we're doing on products and what's going on in people's lives and who had a birthday and you know all the sort of usual things. And that's true today. And that's something that I think no other company can do. And in fact, we regularly have people from Stack come by the office. I go over there you know, for board meetings or to talk to their marketing team. And so there's a connection between these companies around these values, around you know, this, this set of principles about how we treat people and, and what the ways are that we work, even to the point of you know, Joel wrote a blog post in 2001 Mm-hmm. that said uh, it was called the Joel test and it was you know these sort of rules about how to make software and they were some were very prosaic make sure you have a version control system and things and but that was you know half a decade before github existed so there was still a sure. radical thing to say and even a simpler point of you know every programmer should have an office with a door that closes so they can concentrate and i remember and, he said he said if i can do this in new york the most expensive real estate in the world wherever you are in the world you can do that too i remember reading that yes, he said there's no right. excuses and to this day we do it 
hundred percent, you know, and, and one the only thing that's changed since then is we do allow remote workers now, but we give everybody the tools they need at home too. We sort of tell them like, you know, we'll get you the, the noise canceling headphones and the adjustable desk if you want a standing desk and we'll get you all the kit, all the gear you need to, to go and do it. And that's still something that we hold the line on all these years later. And I, I, I said to Joel the other day, I only wish he had said on his list, like, don't illegally collude with your biggest competitor in order to depress the wages of your workers as Google and Apple did, <laughs> you know, if you had put that on the list alongside the have a nice lunch and have an office with a nice desk, I think uh, maybe that would have helped. But what, uh, what, are, what are his thoughts about remote work? I mean, they seem to be two schools of thought, you know, there's the Marissa yeah. Mayer, well, no remote work all come in. And then there's this other school of thought, which is base camp where our industry lends itself so well to it. And let's, there's a lot of advantages. Let, uh, you know, go for I, I think, I think there are strengths to both and it depends on what you're trying to do. I think to mm-hmm. the point, uh, and I had a little bit of a window. I, I used to have a strategy consulting firm and, we, and my co-founder was on the board of Yahoo and helped recruit Marissa. So I got a window into her joining at, mm-hmm. at Yahoo. And, and, and what I saw was they were a company at a point of reckoning and one that had not had a lot of innovation or a lot of output uh, in a long time. And I think if you're going to be in, you know, call it crunch mode or, or you know, focused mode or whatever it is, it does make sense, especially if you ha- already have the offices to use, to have everybody in the same place and, and, and that sort of, you know, we're in this together. Kind of a bit thing. of a war room type. You know, exactly, you exactly. The war that room was and, my strong yeah. sense of it. I don't think she was saying nobody can ever be remote right. again. I think it, it right. was... We've got know, a lot of work to do. We just want to yeah. keep things simple, not introduce right. any more variables. Let's just get on with it. And I think it was a company culture where, you know, if there's the worst case you could have is people that are disconnected, have no sense of urgency, and they're remote, mm-hmm. right? Because then they're just sort of floating in space and people become very unhappy. I think, you know, people need a purpose and a sense of connection and meaningfulness to what they're doing to be satisfied in their work and already hard with remote, even if you are doing a sure. great job. So I think that that's sort of one part to it. I think, you know, and I've always looked to Basecamp, and I still think of them as 37 Signals, but I always look to to David and, and Jason and Basecamp and, and other similar companies that I learned a lot from about how to run a company. And, you know, I'm pro-remote. I mean, two-thirds of Fall Creek is remote employees wow. now. Okay. Um, and that, I would say five years ago, it was, you know, 5%. What's the uh, time zone spread of those two-thirds? Um, it's, not, it's not as big as, as I probably would like it to be. Mm-hmm. We have one of our folks in the UK and then every US time zone, which is three. Uh, and then one of the team members in Mexico, I think, is one further time zone over. So it's it's about in terms of hours, it's about eight hours. Um, That's something so we we struggle with with being in Australia. We we try yeah. and push towards some of the remote workers, and of course, Australia's in the time zone of no one. So. Yeah, yeah, it's quite hard. We we'd had um, when I, I I used to make the the um, work on the blogging tools, movable type and type pad, and they were sort of the early content management systems. And we had our biggest office. Uh, I was in San Francisco at the time. The uh-huh. other the second biggest office was in Japan. It was in Tokyo. Right, similar and, thing, similar story. Yeah, yeah, and that was very hard. And then. I moved back to New York while still working at that company. That was incredibly hard. So, you know, it was... Um, it's literally the opposite time zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, yeah. You know, and you're, you're completely offset from Japan. But then to be able to find a common time between Japan and Tokyo, New York, and San Francisco is pretty much impossible. It, it's and, like when I'm in New York, I feel like I'm working day and night. I do the two shifts, the New York shift and the yeah, Sydney shift, yeah, and they are yeah. opposite ends. Yeah. And, and I see that now where, you know, the end of the sort of the Trello story is about a... I guess it's been about a month or six weeks or so. Trello as an independent company sold to Atlassian. And now Atlassian must have really wanted them, right? 
and yeah. which is great for you guys. But Atlassian paid a lot of money for that, and it's I mean they, they did. didn't didn't even have that cash on that balance sheet, so they're obviously funding it by some other instruments or so. But they must have been incredibly um, hungry for that product because they saw that it, ultimately it would have been a significant competitor to Jira. Yeah, you know, it's quite interesting because in the very early days of Jira, you know, Jira and Fogbugs were the sort of two market leaders. It's an interesting thing to have watched. I mean, we still have a very successful business with Fogbugs, but obviously not on the scale of what Jira is. And so, and there was, I think, a bit of a rivalry, um, which may, I'm not sure, but may explain why the logo of Fogbugs is a Kiwi, um, (laughs) because I think that might have been a little bit of a... A jab. I'm not sure, but I uh, I have my suspicions. But uh, um, but it, it was to that point, but it was always a friendly rivalry. I mean, I think it was sort of these are all of course. very yeah. thoughtful, good people, and, and and I think actually very much in the manner of how you know Aussies and Kiwis tend to uh, uh, take shots at one another, and um, and so it was something where the I think there was an interesting you know rise of watching. Oh well, this model is working very well for Jira, and they're succeeding. And what would it look like to be the sort of new era of that. And I, I have to imagine, and I wasn't there at the time except to see the product. I have to imagine that was some of the inspiration for Trello was this like, what would the new kind of thing look like, right? And so there's this, you know, sequencing of, of, a, of a bit of a back and a forth uh, of let's keep it, each of us, you know, between these companies iterating on how to solve this kind of problem. And I, you know, I actually haven't had a chance to talk to, to Joel and Michael about this since the, the transaction happened, but I, I have to imagine there was some sense of satisfaction of these erstwhile rivals having to acknowledge that what they had made was so good, you know, that they needed to have it as part of their company. It's the ultimate form of flattery, right? When the student beats the teacher, that's, (laughs) that's the ultimate, right? Yeah. And I think uh, at the same time, I think there was also a nice sense of like that put a real, a wonderful bookend on the sense that there was a rivalry because now Michael, I think, reports directly to the founders of Atlassian and, you know, and, and Michael still runs the Trello team. And so that's a, you know, that's an, also a unique and unusual thing to have happen in the industry. I think only that grounding in the values of what they are, that we're going to sort of, you know, still hold true to them. I think um, without that, it would never have been able to work. And so that that's something I just think is a, there aren't a lot of parallels to that in the industry. But the interesting thing for me in the last few weeks has been, uh, we now share our office with uh, Atlassian New York. Terrific. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think they've so, had a New York up until now, have they? No, no. I think Office they had tried very, very early on. Yep. They, they're they're going to put their office in the States of New York and the time zones sort of scotched that. And so they ended up going to San Francisco after a very short period of time. So this is the first time they've had a substantial presence in New York. But the interesting thing about this is, although obviously the team here is working on Trello, you know, nominally the biggest competitor to our key product of Fogbugs is Jira. And, and yet we are roommates with them in our cozy little office downtown. And so that's a fun, you know, who knows how that'll resolve. But I think for now, it's a really fun sort of state of affairs. I and mean, we do still have lunch with them every day. There's times to collaborate and times to compete. And you guys are in an interesting, yeah, unique yeah. situation. Tell us about GoMix. Oh, um, I'm so your- excited about it. This is, you know, honestly, I had talked to Michael and Joel about Fog Creek for a long time. And I was also like, you know, I love the company, but I don't feel I'm, you know, I don't know I qualify for this, whatever. And I saw what would become GoMix and I sort of lost it. I thought this is the best thing I've seen. Like I have to, like whatever I can do to help this thing exist in the world. I just was so taken with it. And the, the, sh- the short version of it is 
it is a uh, a programming environment, a, a development environment that lives in in your web browser and lives in the cloud. And mm-hmm. I say that, and people say, "Well, well, we've had text editors in the web browser before, and we've had things like uh, very good tools like CodePen and you know JS Fiddle, and and we've been able to edit that code. And so, how is this different to that?" And you say, "Well, we've got a lot more tools around being able to collaborate." And they say, "Oh, well, GitHub, you can kind of edit in the browser." And you say, "Well, yes, but what's happening as soon as you?" make a change to your code that you see in GoMix, it immediately deploys it live on the cloud as, as real code because there's a complete server running behind it, running node. Right. And, and that the ability to do that is essentially brand new because of the advancements that have happened in containerization, virtualization, orchestration, uh, the drop in cost of deploying those things in the cloud, the maturity of node as a platform to be able to host that, uh, improvements in the browsers to being able to do the real-time collaboration, all those things. Like all that has changed so rapidly that it's only in the last maybe 18 months that you can make the system where if you go to GoMix, what you'll see is sort of looks like an app store. Here's a sample Slack bot and a sample Twitter bot and a sample, uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever you want to make it, Amazon Alexa skill. You click on it and immediately it opens up the code in this full development environment. But what's happened in the back end is it's automatically spun up a brand new web server for you in the Amazon cloud running node and con- connected to this code, pulled down the latest version of the code and has it deployed live to the web. And that's happening in about a second. Is, is it almost the equivalent of like a WYSIWYG editor? Yes. What we keep thinking about is there are a couple things. Uh, one is um, I said, I wanted to be Google docs for writing code. Mm-hmm. And, and I think of, you know, I'm, I, again, I'm old enough where I can't, you know, came up using uh, Microsoft word and track changes and, and what a, you know, a lot of pain that was. Yeah. And, and now it's like, a good version with their suggested edits. It's that's a, it's right. A lot better. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It works quite well. And also, I mean, if I were writing a book, I would use Microsoft word, but for any normal business document, I would rather use Google docs one, cause it's easy and it's there and it's in my browser. But two, if I just send the link to you and you want to add some edits, it's sort of effortless. And that model, I thought of the the, F, the challenge we had, you know, in my last company, we were an open source project and we had at, at some points, a lot of contributors and teaching people who were new contributors, how to rebase on GitHub and, you know, and sort of make a proper pull request and review their code and do all those things uh, felt like using track changes in word. I mm-hmm. thought, you know, if I could just invite you into Compassive. my editor. Yeah. Yeah. If I could just invite you in and we could edit together live, it would be a completely different experience. It would just be, well, what I'm used to and everything else, you know, that's, that's what I do in Google docs. That's what I do when I'm chatting in Slack. And why can't I do that when I code? Is your target market developers or non-developers who want to create something? It's a little in between what I think of a lot. And certainly for developers, what I think of is if you're a current developer, I think this is where you're going to go and do everything that you find fun because any other development environment, your normal, you know, t- text editor on your desktop is going to feel lonely compared to GoMix. Mm-hmm. But I think there are, and in the States here, I think we have about a million people who are working developers or programmers or coders of some kind. But I think we probably have 10 times that number who are people that, you know, in the old days would have made a GeoCities website uh, on their own. Today has probably, um, you know, edited a, a WordPress blog post, the, the HTML, or they have uh, made a formula in a spreadsheet. So they've got a little bit of technical skill, but you know, the barriers to, to being a proper coder have been too high, especially because coders are often really rude to new developers, right? Yeah. They're very hostile to it. And so 
I think about what Stack Overflow did to make coding accessible to people. And that's a lot of the mission of what Gomix can do is we say, one, be the, the, the place that a million working coders in the, in the US or you know, I think it's 20 million coders around the world can go and, and say, this is a less lonely place to do my code. And then the next, the adjacent audience of another 50 million people who have some technical skills will be able to come in, start from a working project rather than a, uh, you know, a broken pile of pieces and remix it and change it and tweak it into exactly what they want. And then the things that we're working on, this is sort of <laughs> revealing a bit of our upcoming roadmap, is the minute they get stuck or they get an error message, be able to raise your hand and say to the entire Gomix community, can somebody come in here and help me understand what's wrong with this app so I can fix it and maybe we can suss it out together. Now, are they um, working on apps for themselves? Are they collaborating on apps they both going to use? Or? We're seeing a range of different things there. Um, right. One of the first communities actually that's taken really taken to Gomix here, especially in the States post uh, this election, uh, are activists. And so we have a lot of people saying, I want to build a tool to help organize my community or to respond to uh, a social issue that I care about. And in many cases, they have, well, one, they have an you know, immense amount of drive and motivation. Uh, two, they have a little bit of technical skill. So they've built websites and things before, but they, you know, and they've played a little bit with interactive code, but they sort of don't fully know how to program. And then we found a really interesting latent audience of developers who are saying, oh, I have this technical skill and I have a couple hours free each evening and I wish I could put it towards a good cause, but I don't know which ones. And so what we've been doing is matchmaking in some ways and pairing those people up. And especially because they can find each other because we've got a community where you can discover the apps that are there and remix them and see who created them. And even just ask to join. If you're like, I, you know, I know how to code, I'd like to help you out. Um, that those gears are starting to turn. And that's something I think we're incredibly excited about. I mean, literally the top priority we have is to build that ability for somebody to say, you have know, gotten just the basic bones of this thing working and I'd like to raise my hand and ask somebody to help me turn it into something really powerful. So it's almost like a, an improved social layer across open source in a way. Very much so. Yeah, I think what we found, and we did a bit of surveys on this. I even just sort of informally asked on Twitter, well, the phrasing I used was, what, what made you stop learning to code or trying to learn to code? Mm. And um, Good question. Yeah, and, it, well, and what had happened, because I think for so many years, we'd always heard the like, you know, do you want to learn to code? It was even a bit of a fad where we had like the mayor here in New York City, the last mayor, uh, Michael Bloomberg, uh, say, oh, I've signed up for a coding class online and this kind of thing. And I'm like, why? I don't know why he did that, but okay. <laughs> and I thought the opposite, which I think many, many more people have thought, I'm going to learn to code this year. That's going to be my New Year's resolution and then abandoned it. And what you find out is about three quarters of the time, the, the fundamental reason somebody stopped learning to code is because some guy was a jerk to them. Right. Uh, you know, they asked a question on a mailing list or uh, as a contributor to an open source project and got shut down. You know, you don't have enough knowledge. You don't know what you're doing. We don't want you here. All those other sort of things that we, we hear mm. far too often. And so, you know, I'm old enough to remember when open source was a radical idea. We thought, okay, well, if you can just make everything open, then everybody will be able to collaborate together. And we'll fix all the bugs and all the problems and we'll make great software. And what is directly parallel to all the issues we had in tech is, well, that solved the technical issue or even the legal issue, but not the social issue about what it takes to get people to work well together. And so we look at really deeply, Gomix is this broader solution of create a social context where people are oriented towards helping one another and it's effortless to collaborate. And then the stuff that we already have in open source, the code that people have been writing for decades now, uh, will come alive in a way that it hasn't before. 
And I hope this feeds into the very important issue, which in a way is related to what we first started chatting about at the beginning of the interview, the ethics, which ties into the diversity in our industry, which is mm-hmm. such an issue. I mean, you know, I have a small startup and we feel the symptoms of the problem needs to get resolved at lower down the food chain of the training and of people feeling comfortable from diverse backgrounds, feeling comfortable to go and skill themselves up and learn the hard skills of coding and engineering so that when I'm at the opposite end, we have a pool to choose from and it gets a lot easier to create those diverse companies. Yeah, very much so. And I think these things are directly related. What what I hadn't understood for a long time is when we made tools that were thoughtless or that didn't anticipate how they would be misused or leave people behind, part of it was because our teams weren't diverse enough. If we'd had people with other perspectives, they would have anticipated those issues. The idea that the ethical failings of, of the industry and the diversity failings of the industry were directly connected in retrospect feels really obvious, but it took me a long time to learn. And so we think of this as that's one of the core missions of building this GOMIX community is that it's inclusive and friendly and welcoming from the start because it means we will make better software in the community. And so there's a really nice thing where, you know, a lot of what we're looking at for how to make GOMIX sustainable over the long term is, is partnering with companies that have APIs and that have, you know, software development kits that they want, you know, a community to use. And oftentimes their process right now is to go to, you know, a meetup and tell, you know, the group there, well, you know, we'll give you a t-shirt and will you please come to our GitHub page and download this code and maybe get it running on your laptop and and then try our platform. That's a lot of work and a lot mm-hmm. of risk and, and actually doesn't do a good job of getting out to people who are, you know, not at that event in the first place. And so we think of, you know, if instead you go to the site and they just have a button that is try this now and go, you know, like tomorrow. And instantly today you can do this and got live running code and it's there. And then when you get stuck, you could ask for help. And maybe that company that makes the API will help you. Maybe somebody else in the community will help you. And because you're doing it in GoMix as a community where we value inclusion and you've already got diverse viewpoints and people that are there that are from a different background and they'll help you identify what you might not have thought of when you built that software. Um, that's a better solution for everybody. So that's a lot of what we think about of how to, grow the community, but also bring it into solving this problem, not just for our company, but across a lot of companies in the industry. Do you code? I do. I do. I, um, I try not to exasperate all the other coders at our, our company because they're <laughs> all better at it than me. Um, and actually, that's where GoMix has been great because, well, there's, this is sort of one of those um, eat your own dog food things. The If you go to gomix.com and you see the community site, we've got, the, like I said, it looks like a bit of like an app store and there's sort of directory of apps. That is itself a GoMix app. Um, so we use the tool to make the tool. Uh-huh. And, that's cool. um, and that's something where, that's where I get to tinker, right? I sort of like to go in and, and play and, and I'm not messing up the editor for people because that's sort of the thing where I'm like, I'm not a good enough coder where I would feel like what I'm doing is is shippable uh to, to users but on the community side where it's you know much more sort of design oriented and I'm, I'm a much stronger front-end developer i can sort of have my have my way there a bit and uh that's really fun it's a great outlet for me it also it gets me using the tool to make real production software for our company every day that's something that i think gets right to the heart of what i understood fog creek to be when i first became a fan 15 years ago you know, and, and it's nice to have that connecting through into how we run day to day today. 
Fantastic. And Neil, I know it's getting late there. I believe you're in my, one of my favorite parts of Manhattan. You're on the Lower East Side, East Village. I yes, heard that's right. That's right. Yeah. One of my favorite parts on, on that uh, wonderful part of the world. Maybe uh, on my next trip, I'd love to catch up. But Oh, uh, I'd love to, have, love to host you here. We'd love to have you come by Fog Creek as well. I'd love to see those great offices and really appreciate your time on the podcast. We've been talking to Neil Dash, who's the CEO of Fog Creek Software and a well-known blogger and tweeter. And we'll put in links to all these bits and pieces on our show notes. And thanks so much for joining us. Cheers. Thanks so much for having me on.